Section 13 of the Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11, by Charles Dudley Warner. Section 13. The Genesis of the Origin of Species from Life and Letters, by Charles Darwin. After several fruitless searches in Surrey and elsewhere, we found this house and purchased it. I was pleased with the diversified appearance of vegetation proper to a chalk district, and so unlike what I had been accustomed to in the Midland counties, and still more pleased with the extreme quietness and rusticity of the place. It is not, however, quite so retired a place as a writer in a German periodical makes it, who says that my house can be approached only by a mule track. Our fixing ourselves here has answered admirably in one way, which we did not anticipate, namely, by being very convenient for frequent visits from our children. Few persons can have lived a more retired life than we have done. Besides short visits to the houses of relations, and occasionally to the seaside or elsewhere, we have gone nowhere. During the first part of our residence we went a little into society, and received a few friends here. But my health almost always suffered from the excitement, violent shivering and vomiting attacks being thus brought on. I have therefore been compelled for many years to give up all dinner parties, and this has been somewhat of a deprivation to me, as such parties always put me into high spirits. From the same cause I have been able to invite here very few scientific acquaintances. During the voyage of the Beagle I had been deeply impressed by discovering in the Pampian formation great fossil animals covered with armor like that on the existing armadillos. Secondly, by the manner in which closely allied animals replace one another in proceeding southwards over the continent, and thirdly, by the South American character of most of the productions of the Galapagos archipelago, and more especially by the manner in which they differ slightly on each island of the group, none of the islands appearing to be very ancient in a geological sense. It was evident that such facts as these, as well as many others, could only be explained on the supposition that species gradually become modified, and the subject haunted me. But it was equally evident that neither the action of the surrounding conditions, nor the will of the organisms, especially in the case of plants, could account for the innumerable cases in which organisms of every kind are beautifully adapted to their habits of life. For instance, a woodpecker or a tree frog to climb trees, or a seed for dispersal by hooks or plumes. I had always been much struck by such adaptations, and until these could be explained, it seemed to me almost useless to endeavor to prove by indirect evidence that species have been modified. After my return to England, it appeared to me that by following the example of Lyell in geology, and by collecting all facts which bore in any way on the variation of animals and plants under domestication and nature, some light might perhaps be thrown on the whole subject. 
My first notebook was opened in July 1837. I worked on true Baconian principles, and without any theory, collected facts on a wholesale scale, more especially with respect to domesticated productions, by printed inquiries, by conversation with skillful breeders and gardeners, and by extensive reading. When I see the list of books of all kinds which I read and abstracted, including whole series of journals and transactions, I am surprised at my industry. I soon perceived that selection was the keystone of man's success in making useful races of animals and plants. But how selection could be applied to organisms living in a state of nature remained for some time a mystery to me. In October 1838, that is, fifteen months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for amusement Malthus on Population, and being well prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence, which everywhere goes on from long-continued observation of the habits of animals and plants, it at once struck me that under these circumstances favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable ones to be destroyed the result of this would be the formation of new species here then i had at last got a theory by which to work but i was so anxious to avoid prejudice that i determined not for some time to write even the briefest sketch of it in June 1842, I first allowed myself the satisfaction of writing a very brief abstract of my theory in pencil in 35 pages, and this was enlarged during the summer of 1844 into one of 230 pages, which I had fairly copied out and still possess. But at that time I overlooked one problem of great importance, and it is astonishing to me, except on the principle of Columbus and his egg, how I could have overlooked it and its solution. This problem is the tendency in organic beings descended from the same stock to diverge in character as they become modified that they have diverged greatly is obvious from the manner in which species of all kinds can be classed under genera genera under families families under suborders and so forth and i can remember the very spot in the road whilst in my carriage when to my joy the solution occurred to me and this was long after i had come to down the solution, as I believe, is that the modified offspring of all dominant and increasing forms tend to become adapted to many and highly diversified places in the economy of nature. Early in 1856, Lyell advised me to write out my views pretty fully, and I began at once to do so, on a scale three or four times as extensive as that which was afterwards followed in my Origin of Species. Yet it was only an abstract of the materials which I had collected, and I got through about half the work on this scale but my plans were overthrown for early in the summer of eighteen fifty eight mr wallace who was then in the malay archipelago sent me an essay on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type and this essay contained exactly the same theory as mine 
mr wallace expressed the wish that if i thought well of his essay i should send it to lyell for perusal the circumstances under which i consented at the request of lyell and hooker to allow of an abstract from my manuscript together with a letter to asa gray dated september fifth eighteen fifty seven to be published at the same time with wallace's essay are given in the journal of the proceedings of the linnean society eighteen fifty eight page forty five I was at first very unwilling to consent, as I thought Mr. Wallace might consider my doing so unjustifiable, for I did not then know how generous and noble was his disposition. The extract from my manuscript and the letter to Asa Gray had neither been intended for publication, and were badly written. Mr. Wallace's essay, on the other hand, was admirably expressed and quite clear. Nevertheless, our joint productions excited very little attention, and the only published notice of them which I can remember was by Professor Houghton of Dublin, whose verdict was that all that was new in them was false, and what was true was old. This shows how necessary it is that any new view should be explained at considerable length in order to arouse public attention." My habits are methodical, and this has been of not a little use for my particular line of work. Lastly, I have had ample leisure from not having to earn my own bread. Even ill health, though it has annihilated several years of my life, has saved me from the distractions of society and amusement. Therefore, my success as a man of science, whatever this may have amounted to, has been determined as far as I can judge by complex and diversified mental qualities and conditions. Of these, the most important have been the love of science, unbounded patience in long reflecting over any subject, industry in observing and collecting facts, and a fair share of invention as well as of common sense. With such moderate abilities as I possess, it is truly surprising that I should have influenced to a considerable extent the belief of scientific men on some important points. Curious Atrophy of Aesthetic Taste From Life and Letters There seems to be a sort of fatality in my mind, leading me to put at first my statement or proposition in a wrong or awkward form. Formerly, I used to think about my sentences before writing them down, but for several years I have found that it saves time to scribble in a vile hand whole pages as quickly as I possibly can, contracting half the words, and then correct deliberately. Sentences thus scribbled down are often better ones than I could have written deliberately. Having said thus much about my manner of writing, I will add that with my large books I spend a good deal of time over the general arrangement of the matter. I first make the rudest outline in two or three pages, and then a larger one in several pages, a few words or one word standing for a whole discussion or a series of facts. Each one of these headings is again enlarged and often transferred before I begin to write in extenso. 
as in several of my books facts observed by others have been very extensively used and as i have always had several quite distinct subjects in hand at the same time i may mention that i keep from thirty to forty large portfolios in cabinets with labelled shelves into which i can at once put a detached reference or memorandum i have bought many books and at their ends i make an index of all the facts that concern my work or if the book is not my own write out a separate abstract and of such abstracts i have a large drawer full before beginning on any subject i look to all the short indexes and make a general and classified index and by taking the one or more proper portfolios i have all the information collected during my life ready for use i have said that in one respect my mind has changed during the last twenty or thirty years up to the age of thirty or beyond it Poetry of many kinds, such as the works of Milton, Gray, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Shelley, gave me great pleasure, and even as a schoolboy I took intense delight in Shakespeare, especially in the historical plays. I have also said that formerly pictures gave me considerable, and music very great delight, but now for many years i cannot endure to read a line of poetry i have tried lately to read shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me i have also almost lost my taste for pictures or music music generally sets me thinking too energetically on what i have been at work on instead of giving me pleasure I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. On the other hand, novels, which are works of the imagination, though not of a very high order, have been for years a wonderful relief and pleasure to me, and I often bless all novelists. A surprising number have been read aloud to me, and I like all, if moderately good, and if they do not end unhappily, against which a law ought to be passed. A novel, according to my taste, does not come into the first class unless it contains some person whom one can thoroughly love, and, if a pretty woman, all the better." this curious and lamentable loss of the higher aesthetic tastes is all the odder as books on history biographies and travels independently of any scientific facts which they may contain and essays on all sorts of subjects interest me as much as ever they did my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts but why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. A man with a mind more highly organized, or better constituted than mine, would not, I suppose, have thus suffered. And if I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week for perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use the loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature 
private memorandum concerning his little daughter from life and letters our poor child annie was born in gower street on march second eighteen forty one and expired at malvern at midday on the twenty third of april eighteen fifty one i write these few pages as i think in after years if we live the impressions now put down will recall more vividly her chief characteristics from whatever point i look back at her the main feature in her disposition which at once rises before me is her buoyant joyousness tempered by two other characteristics namely her sensitiveness which might easily have been overlooked by a stranger and her strong affection her joyousness and animal spirits radiated from her whole countenance and rendered every movement elastic and full of life and vigor it was delightful and cheerful to behold her her dear face now rises before me as she used sometimes to come running downstairs with a stolen pinch of snuff for me her whole form radiant with the pleasure of giving pleasure even when playing with her cousins when her joyousness almost passed into boisterousness a single glance of my eye not of displeasure for i thank god i hardly ever cast one on her but of want of sympathy would for some minutes alter her whole countenance the other point in her character which made her joyousness and spirits so delightful was her strong affection which was of a most clinging fondling nature when quite a baby this showed itself in never being easy without touching her mother when in bed with her and quite lately she would when poorly fondle for any length of time one of her mother's arms when very unwell her mother lying down beside her seemed to soothe her in a manner quite different from what it would have done to any of our other children so again she would at almost any time spend half an hour in arranging my hair making it as she called it beautiful or in smoothing the poor dear darling my collar or cuffs in short in fondling me besides her joyousness thus tempered she was in her manners remarkably cordial frank open straightforward natural and without any shade of reserve her whole mind was pure and transparent. One felt one knew her thoroughly and could trust her. I always thought that come what might, we should have had in our old age at least one loving soul which nothing could have changed. All her movements were vigorous, active, and usually graceful. When going round the sand walk with me, although I walked fast, yet she often used to go before pirouetting in the most elegant way her dear face bright all the time with the sweetest smiles occasionally she had a pretty coquettish manner towards me the memory of which is charming she often used exaggerated language and when i quizzed her by exaggerating what she had said how clearly now i can see the little toss of the head and exclamation of oh papa what a shame of you in the last short illness her conduct and simple truth was angelic she never once complained never became fretful was ever considerate of others and was thankful in the most gentle pathetic manner for everything done for her when so exhausted that she could hardly speak she praised everything that was given her and said some tea was beautifully good 
When I gave her some water, she said, I quite thank you. And these, I believe, were the last precious words ever addressed by her dear lips to me. We have lost the joy of the household and the solace of our old age. She must have known how we loved her. Oh, that she could now know how deeply, how tenderly, we do still, and shall ever love her dear, joyous face. Blessings on her. April 30th, 1851 Religious Views From Life and Letters I am much engaged, an old man, and out of health, and I cannot spare time to answer your questions fully, nor, indeed, can they be answered. Science has nothing to do with Christ, except in so far as the habit of scientific research makes a man cautious in admitting evidence. For myself, I do not believe that there ever has been any revelation. As for a future life, every man must judge for himself between conflicting vague probabilities. During these two years, October 1836 to January 1839, I was led to think much about religion. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox, and I remember being heartily laughed at by several of the officers, though themselves orthodox, for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. I suppose it was the novelty of the argument that amused them but I had gradually come by this time, i.e. 1836 to 1839, to see that the Old Testament was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus. The question then continually rose before my mind, and would not be banished. Is it credible that if God were now to make a revelation to the Hindus, he would permit it to be connected with the belief in Vishnu, Siva, etc.? as christianity is connected with the old testament this appeared to me utterly incredible by further reflecting that the clearest evidence would be requisite to make any sane man believe in the miracles by which christianity is supported and that the more we know of the fixed laws of nature the more incredible do miracles become that the men at this time were ignorant and credulous to a degree almost incomprehensible by us that the gospels cannot be proved to have been written simultaneously with the events that they differ in many important details far too important as it seemed to me to be admitted as the usual inaccuracies of eye-witnesses by such reflections as these which i give not as having the least novelty or value but as they influenced me i gradually came to disbelieve in christianity as a divine revelation the fact that many false religions have spread over large portions of the earth like wildfire had some weight with me but I was very unwilling to give up my belief. I feel sure of this, for I can well remember often and often inventing daydreams of old letters between distinguished Romans and manuscripts being discovered at Pompeii or elsewhere, which confirmed in the most striking manner all that was written in the Gospels. But I found it more and more difficult, with free scope given to my imagination, to invent evidence which would suffice to convince me. Thus disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress. 
although i did not think much about the existence of a personal god until a considerably later period of my life i will here give the vague conclusions to which i have been driven the old argument from design in nature as given by paley which formerly seemed to me so conclusive fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered we can no longer argue that for instance the beautiful hinge of a bivalve shell must have been made by an intelligent being like the hinge of a door by man there seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows but i have discussed this subject at the end of my book on the variations of domesticated animals and plants and the argument there given has never as far as i can see been answered but passing over the endless beautiful adaptations which we everywhere meet with it may be asked how can the generally beneficent arrangement of the world be accounted for some writers indeed are so much impressed with the amount of suffering in the world that they doubt if we look to all sentient beings whether there is more of misery or of happiness whether the world as a whole is a good or a bad one according to my judgment happiness decidedly prevails though this would be very difficult to prove if the truth of this conclusion be granted it harmonizes well with the effects which we might expect from natural selection if all the individuals of any species were habitually to suffer to an extreme degree they would neglect to propagate their kind but we have no reason to believe that this has ever or at least often occurred some other considerations moreover lead to the belief that all sentient beings have been formed so as to enjoy as a general rule happiness everyone who believes as i do that all the corporeal and mental organs excepting those which are neither advantageous nor disadvantageous to the possessor of all beings have been developed through natural selection or the survival of the fittest together with use or habit will admit that these organs have been formed so that their possessors may compete successfully with other beings and thus increase in number now an animal may be led to pursue that course of action which is most beneficial to the species by suffering such as pain hunger thirst and fear or by pleasure as in eating and drinking and in the propagation of the species etc or by both means combined as in the search for food but pain or suffering of any kind if long continued causes depression and lessens the power of action yet is well adapted to make a creature guard itself against any great or sudden evil pleasurable sensations on the other hand may be long continued without any depressing effect on the contrary they stimulate the whole system to increased action hence it has come to pass that most or all sentient beings have been developed in such a manner through natural selection that pleasurable sensations serve as their habitual guides we see this in the pleasure from exertion even occasionally from great exertion of the body or mind 
in the pleasure of our daily meals and especially in the pleasure derived from sociability and from loving our families the sum of such pleasures as these which are habitual or frequently recurrent give as i can hardly doubt to most sentient beings an excess of happiness over misery although many occasionally suffer much such suffering is quite compatible with the belief in natural selection which is not perfect in its action but tends only to render each species as successful as possible in the battle for life with other species in wonderfully complex and changing circumstances that there is much suffering in the world no one disputes some have attempted to explain this with reference to man by imagining that it serves for his moral improvement but the number of men in the world is as nothing compared with that of all other sentient beings and they often suffer greatly without any moral improvement this very old argument from the existence of suffering against the existence of an intelligent first cause seems to me a strong one whereas as just remarked the presence of much suffering agrees well with the view that all organic beings have been developed through variation and natural selection at the present day the most usual argument for the existence of an intelligent god is drawn from the deep inward conviction and feelings which are experienced by most persons formerly i was led by feelings such as those just referred to although i do not think that the religious sentiment was ever strongly developed in me to the firm conviction of the existence of god and of the immortality of the soul in my journal i wrote that whilst standing in the midst of the grandeur of a brazilian forest it is not possible to give an adequate idea of the higher feelings of wonder admiration and devotion which fill and elevate the mind i well remember my conviction that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body but now the grandest scenes would not cause any such convictions and feelings to rise in my mind it may be truly said that i am like a man who has become color-blind and the universal belief by men of the existence of redness makes my present loss of perception of not the least value as evidence this argument would be a valid one if all men of all races had the same inward conviction of the existence of one god but we know that this is very far from being the case therefore i cannot see that such inward convictions and feelings are of any weight as evidence of what really exists the state of mind which grand scenes formerly excited in me and which was intimately connected with a belief in god did not essentially differ from that which is often called the sense of sublimity and however difficult it may be to explain the genesis of this sense it can hardly be advanced as an argument for the existence of god any more than the powerful though vague and similar feelings excited by music with respect to immortality nothing shows me so clearly how strong and almost instinctive a belief it is as the consideration of the view now held by most physicists namely that the sun with all the planets will in time grow too cold for life unless indeed some great body dashes into the sun and thus gives it fresh life 
believing as i do that man in the distant future will be a far more perfect creature than he now is it is an intolerable thought that he and all other sentient beings are doomed to complete annihilation after such long-continued slow progress to those who fully admit the immortality of the human soul the destruction of our world will not appear so dreadful another source of conviction in the existence of god connected with the reason and not with the feelings impresses me as having much more weight this follows from the extreme difficulty or rather impossibility of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe including man with his capacity of looking far backward and far into futurity as the result of blind chance or necessity while thus reflecting i feel compelled to look to a first cause having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man and i deserve to be called a theist this conclusion was strong in my mind about the time as far as i can remember when i wrote the origin of species and it is since that time that it has very gradually with many fluctuations become weaker but then arises the doubt can the mind of man which has as i fully believe been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animals be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions i cannot pretend to throw the least light on such abstruse problems the mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble by us and i for one must be content to remain an agnostic Charles Darwin to Miss Julia Wedgwood on Design From Life and Letters July 11th, 1861 Someone has sent us Macmillan, and I must tell you how much I admire your article, though at the same time I must confess that I could not clearly follow you in some parts, which probably is in main part due to my not being at all accustomed to metaphysical trains of thought, i think that you understand my book perfectly and that i find a very rare event with my critics the ideas in the last page have several times vaguely crossed my mind owing to several correspondents i have been led lately to think or rather to try to think over some of the chief points discussed by you but the result has been with me a maze something like thinking on the origin of evil to which you allude the mind refuses to look at this universe being what it is without having been designed yet where one would most expect design viz in the structure of a sentient being the more i think on the subject the less i can see proof of design asa gray and some others look at each variation or at least at each beneficial variation which asa gray would compare with the raindrops which do not fall on the sea but on to the land to fertilize it as having been providentially designed yet when i asked him whether he looks at each variation in the rock pigeon by which man has made by accumulation a powder or fantail pigeon as providentially designed for man's amusement he does not know what to answer and if he or any one admits that these variations are accidental as far as purpose is concerned 
of course not accidental as to their cause or origin then i can see no reason why he should rank the accumulated variations by which the beautifully adapted woodpecker has been formed as providentially designed for it would be easy to imagine the enlarged crop of the powder or tail of the fantail as of some use to birds in a state of nature having peculiar habits of life these are the considerations which perplex me about design but whether you will care to hear them i know not on the subject of design he wrote july eighteen sixty to dr gray one word more on designed laws and undesigned results. I see a bird which I want for a food. Take my gun and kill it. I do this designedly. An innocent and good man stands under a tree and is killed by a flash of lightning. Do you believe, and I really should like to hear, that God designedly killed this man? Many or most persons do believe this. I can't and don't. If you believe so, do you believe that when a swallow snaps up a gnat, that God designed that that particular swallow should snap up that particular gnat at that particular instant? I believe that the man and the gnat are in the same predicament. If the death of neither man nor gnat is designed, I see no good reason to believe that their first birth or production should be necessarily designed. Charles Darwin to J. D. Hooker From Life and Letters February 24th, 1863 My dear Hooker, I am astonished at your note. I have not seen the Athenium, but I have sent for it, and may get it to-morrow, and will then say what I think. I have read Lyell's book, The Antiquity of Man. The whole certainly struck me as a compilation, but of the highest class, for when possible the facts have been verified on the spot, making it almost an original work. The glacial chapters seem to me best, and in parts magnificent. I could hardly judge about man, as all the gloss of novelty was completely worn off but certainly the aggregation of the evidence produced a very striking effect on my mind. The chapter comparing language and changes of species seems most ingenious and interesting. He has shown great skill in picking out salient points in the argument for change of species, but I am deeply disappointed, I do not mean personally, to find that his timidity prevents him giving any judgment. From all my communications with him, I must ever think that he has really entirely lost faith in the immutability of species, and yet one of his strongest sentences is nearly as follows. If it should ever be rendered highly probable that species change by variation and natural selection, etc., etc., I had hoped he would have guided the public as far as his own belief went, one thing does please me on this subject, that he seems to appreciate your work. No doubt the public, or a part, may be induced to think that, as he gives to us a larger space than to Lamarck, he must think there is something in our views. When reading the Brain chapter, it struck me forcibly that if he had said openly that he believed in change of species, and as a consequence that man was derived from some quadrumanous animal, 
It would have been very proper to have discussed by compilation the differences in the most important organ, viz., the brain. As it is, the chapter seems to me to come in rather by the head and shoulders. I do not think, but then I am as prejudiced as Falconer and Huxley, or more so, that it is too severe. It struck me as given with judicial force. It might perhaps be said with truth that he had no business to judge on a subject on which he knows nothing, but compilers must do this to a certain extent. You know I value and rank high compilers, being one myself. I have taken you at your word, and scribbled at great length. If I get the Athenium to-morrow, I will add my impression of Owen's letter." The Lyles are coming here on Sunday evening to stay till Wednesday. I dread it, but I must say how much disappointed I am that he has not spoken out on species, still less on man. And the best of the joke is that he thinks he has acted with the courage of a martyr of old. I hope I may have taken an exaggerated view of his timidity, and shall particularly be glad of your opinion on this head." When I got his book, I turned over the pages, and saw he had discussed the subject of species, and said that I thought he would do more to convert the public than all of us. And now, which makes the case worse for me, I must, in common honesty, retract. I wish to heaven he had said not a word on the subject. Wednesday morning. I have read the Athenium. I do not think Lyle will be nearly so much annoyed as you expect. The concluding sentence is no doubt very stinging. No one but a good anatomist could unravel Owen's letter. At least it is quite beyond me. Lyell's memory plays him false when he says all anatomists were astonished at Owen's paper. It was often quoted with approbation. I well remember Lyell's admiration at this new classification. Do not repeat this. I remember it because, though I knew nothing whatever about the brain, I felt a conviction that a classification thus founded on a single character would break down, and it seemed to me a great error not to separate more completely the marsupialia. What an accursed evil it is that there should be all this quarrelling within what ought to be the peaceful realms of science! I will go to my own present subject of inheritance, and forget it all for a time. Farewell, my dear old friend, Darwin. Charles Darwin to T. H. Huxley From Life and Letters 1864 My dear Huxley, If I do not pour out my admiration of your article on Colliger, I shall explode. I never read anything better done. I had much wished his article answered, and indeed thought of doing so myself, so that I considered several points. You have hit on all, and on some in addition, and, oh, by Jove, how well you have done it! As I read on and came to point after point on which I had thought, I could not help jeering and scoffing at myself to see how infinitely better you had done it than I could have done. Well, if any one who does not understand natural selection will read this, he will be a blockhead if it is not as clear as daylight. Old Florence was hardly worth the powder and shot, but how capitally you bring in about the academician, and your metaphor of the sea-sand is inimitable. 
It is a marvel to me how you can resist becoming a regular reviewer. Well, I have exploded now, and it has done me a deal of good. Charles Darwin to E. Ray Lancaster From Life and Letters March 15, 1870 My dear sir, I do not know whether you will consider me a very troublesome man, but I have just finished your book, and cannot resist telling you how the whole has much interested me. No doubt, as you say, there must be much speculation on such a subject, and certain results cannot be reached. But all your views are highly suggestive, and, to my mind, that is high praise. I have been all the more interested, as I am now writing on closely allied, though not quite identical points. I was pleased to see you refer to my much-despised child, Pan-Genesis, who I think will some day, under some better nurse, turn out a fine stripling. It has also pleased me to see how thoroughly you appreciate, and I do not think that this is general with the men of science, H. Spencer. I suspect that hereafter he will be looked at as by far the greatest living philosopher in England, perhaps equal to any that have lived. But I have no business to trouble you with my notions. With sincere thanks for the interest which your work has given me, I remain yours very faithfully, Darwin. From a letter to J. D. Hooker, from Life and Letters Cliff Cottage, Burnmouth, September 26, 1862 My dear Hooker, do not read this till you have leisure. If that blessed moment ever comes, I should be very glad to have your opinion on the subject of this letter. I am led to the opinion that Drosera must have diffused matter in organic connection, closely analogous to the nervous matter of animals. When the glands of one of the papillae or tentacles in its natural position is supplied with nitrogenized fluid and certain other stimulants, or when loaded with an extremely slight weight, or when struck several times with a needle, the pedicle bends near its base in under one minute. These varied stimulants are conveyed down the pedicle by some means. It cannot be vibration, for drops of fluid put on quite quietly cause the movement. It cannot be absorption of the fluid from cell to cell, for I can see the rate of absorption, which, though quick, is far slower, and in Dionier the transmission is instantaneous. Analogy from animals would point to transmission through nervous matter. Reflecting on the rapid power of absorption in the glands, the extreme sensibility of the whole organ, and the conspicuous movement caused by various stimulants, I have tried a number of substances which are not caustic or corrosive, but most of which are known to have a remarkable action on the nervous matter of animals. You will see the results in the enclosed paper. As the nervous matter of different animals is differently acted on by the same poisons, one would not expect the same action on plants and animals. Only if plants have diffused nervous matter, some degree of analogous action. And this is partially the case. Considering these experiments, together with the previously made remarks on the functions of the parts, I cannot avoid the conclusion that Drosera possesses matter at least in some degree analogous in constitution and function to nervous matter. 
Now do tell me what you think, as far as you can judge from my abstract. Of course, many more experiments would have to be tried. But in former years I tried on the whole leaf, instead of on separate glands, a number of innocuous substances such as sugar, gum, starch, etc., and they produced no effect. Your opinion will aid me in deciding some future year in going on with this subject. I should not have thought it worth attempting, but I had nothing on earth to do. My dear Hooker, yours very sincerely, Darwin. P.S. We return home on Monday 28th. Thank heaven. Chapter Illustration The Ape Man Photogravure from a painting by Gabriel Max Professor Max has long been known to the greater public through those wonderful pictures in which some tragic fate, some heartbreak of mankind has found expression, but only an inner circle of intimates has known the artist as an able student of nature. He has thought much and deeply upon the existence and origin of things, and his studies in comparative anatomy have given him unusual preparation for the treatment of the present subject. The entire picture is made up of yellowish and brownish-gray tones, expressive of the twilight of the forest. The skin of the female is about the shade of that of the southern European of today. That of the male is darker. The most interesting of the three figures is the young ape mother, who reclines against a tree trunk and offers her breast to her firstborn. The expression of the face is remarkable. Happiness at the possession of the child mingles with misgiving for its future. The tear which trembles upon her cheek seems indicative of the flood of tears which is to run down the history of her descendants. The father has less of this feeling, and stands upright beside his wife and child, and looks down upon them with an air of pride and paternal joy. The original painting is owned by the celebrated Darwinian philosopher Ernest Haeckel of Jena. End of section 13